And friends, as you're taking your seats, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, as we continue our study to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be reading verses 18 through 22. Just recall, uh, as you're turning there with me, the the brief structure that Pastor Sean went through last week... You remember the Gospel of Matthew swaps back and forth between these narrative or or story portions describing the life and the movement and the ministry of Jesus. And then it moves into a section uh, upon teaching. Uh, uh, We don't want to call it lecturing, so we better call it preaching of the Lord Jesus, right? And then it will move back into narrative. Well, we've moved out of the teaching or the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw last week that what uh, Jesus has been doing afterwards is he's been healing. He's been continuing to be the Messiah to his people. Uh, He's been continuing to uh, tenderly care for the bruised reed. And now what we will see is something very unique. Something surprising, I think, to many. We'll see that... uh, As most preachers, after a long sermon, our Lord needs a nap. He needs some rest. We'll see that Jesus, in his full incarnation, in his glory and in his authoritative majesty and weight, nevertheless, still gets tired. And so let's see now uh, from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8 what God has for us today. Hear now the word of God, Matthew 8, beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere To lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Indeed, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. Friends, let us pray now that he would nourish us by this word today. Great God in heaven, We pray that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and look him full in his wonderful face through your word today. Give us eyes to see our Savior. Give us ears to understand and apply what he has for us today in his word. We ask it in his name. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I I didn't have uh, any stuffed animals at home. Uh, uh, recently I had a conversation with one of you. I, I asked, hey, wh- what is it like to be a dad to a daughter? Uh, and uh, you responded, and I think uh, rather helpfully, buy her stuffed animals. Now, uh, like I said, I, I didn't grow up with stuffed animals. So I don't really know what makes for a good stuffed animal. Is What makes for a, a too firm or, or too soft or not soft enough? I, I don't really know. But all I know is suddenly my house is filled with dolls and stuffed animals as a dad to a little girl. And so I've been thinking about stuffed animals a lot. And it reminded me, as I, as I grew up, I didn't have a stuffed animal, but I did read of a stuffed animal. 
Uh, one of my favorite things to read growing up was the comic Calvin and Hobbes. You familiar with that? I love Calvin and Hobbes for many reasons. But one of the reasons I love Calvin and Hobbes is because when the comic takes on the perspective of the adult, Hobbes, the stuffed tiger, is drawn very differently. He's drawn as a stuffed tiger. And so you never really know, like, is this actually happening? Is, it, is, is Calvin really sort of going around with, with this tiger? And is the tiger actually talking to him? Or is Calvin sort of just out of his mind? Right? And so what's so interesting to me about that comic and about the, the comment that I received about uh, stuffed animals for my daughter and, and watching her now uh, love the baby, right, at home. What's so interesting to me about these stuffed animals is that they go wherever the kid goes, right? I, again, I didn't really know this. I never really experienced this, but I'm experiencing that stuffed animals get dirty, don't they? Uh, and some parents when they buy stuffed animals and learn that they're loved, go back out to the store and buy a couple more, right? Because they go everywhere. Friends, I want to ask you a hard question in the midst of a very difficult and hard-to-hear text from Matthew 8 today. Here's my question. Do you view Jesus as a teddy bear? You see, teddy bears, they're fluffy, they're comforting, they give us security, don't they? You know, a teddy bear can stop a monster from coming out from under your bed, right? A teddy bear makes that door of your bedroom impenetrable, doesn't he? There's many good things. There's many maybe analogous things between Jesus and a teddy bear. But friends, let me tell you, viewing Jesus as a teddy bear is not a good idea. Because here's the deal with teddy bears. Here's the deal with Hobbes. Here's the deal with stuffed animals. Stuffed animals are ours to control. They're ours to drag where we want to go. But Jesus teaches us this morning a different side of himself than we're accustomed to thinking about. Rather than to be drugged around as a teddy bear, Jesus tells us hard and uncomfortable things that make us, if we're honest, squirm a little bit. And instead of us getting to take Jesus where I want to go, Jesus calls us to do these hard things so that, verse 22, we would follow him instead. Now, again, this doesn't really sound like the Jesus we like to picture. It doesn't sound like the Jesus we're accustomed to, to hoping for. But I want to say up front that I'm not presenting... And I don't think Jesus presents in the text today that he is uncaring or that he cannot, as a teddy bear, comfort us. Indeed, he does. As we've just seen just before this, Jesus is an intimate comforter to those in need. But friends, Jesus will not be treated like a teddy bear. He will not follow you because Jesus calls us to follow him because of who he is and who we are. And so, friends, because of who Jesus is, we must realize this morning that we must be both committed and sincere in order to be a true disciple of Christ. Because of who he is, we must, must be both committed and sincere in order to be a true disciple of Christ. And so let's ask those three questions this morning. First, who is Jesus? Look with me again at verse 20. 
In responding to the scribe, Jesus identifies himself. He identifies himself as his favorite title. Read again with me. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that he is going to call himself the Son of Man. We haven't seen it yet. And so we need to take some time right now before we uh, go on to understand what he's talking about and see how he develops it. Because he's going to refer to himself uh, as the Son of Man 29 more times in the Gospel. In fact, I would say of all of the questions that people have about the Bible, this has got to be in the top five. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? Well, what we know is that he identifies himself as the Son of Man. We know that uh, many people disagree about precisely what he means. But I can tell you three things that everybody agrees on when it comes to Jesus' identity as the Son of Man. Okay, First, that this is a reference to that majestic passage of Daniel 7. You recall the vision that Daniel undergoes and and he sees one standing as the Son of Man with authority and power. You see, this is a, a hugely significant passage because the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is referred to as the Ancient of Days, which is a divine title. And so mysteriously, in in a roundabout way, Jesus, in calling himself the Son of Man, is identifying himself actually as divine. As someone with unique authority, with, with unique power, with a unique role in the history of humanity and redemption. But here's the second thing we all agree on. That not every reference Jesus gives to himself of the Son of Man is a specific reference to Daniel 7. So you thought you understood the first point. Let me undo everything I just taught you, right? That yes, it refers to Daniel 7, but not really all the time. Or at least not specifically all the time. Look again at verse 20. Let's let's consider this from the perspective of Daniel 7. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but this great and incredible messianic ancient of days, powerful son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, it's probably not a a specific reference to Daniel 7 here, but actually, and this is, I think, the third thing that we all agree on when it comes to the son of man Jesus is giving the Son of Man its fullest meaning. You see, uh, any good student of the Old Testament would have heard Son of Man and, and maybe recalled the Daniel 7 significance. And yet Jesus is, is not undermining, but filling, as Don Carson says, filling the term with meaning. And that meaning is that Jesus is a suffering Savior. That the Son of Man is not always standing in power and glory, but sometimes has nowhere to lay his head. Doesn't have a home. Unlike foxes 
of the fields and birds of the air. I think I need to go back to Don Carson because he wraps all this together. He says that Jesus uses this phrase of himself. He identifies as the Son of Man precisely because it's ambiguous. Jesus uses it because it is confusing to us. And then Dr. Carson says this wonderful phrase, it conceals as well as it reveals. Well, what is Jesus trying to conceal? Why would he try and conceal his identity? Well, the answer is the time hasn't come. I mean, take your Bible and flip all the way to the, the end of the book of Matthew, right? And see how much is between chapter 8 and 28. Think of all the parables and miracles. Think of all the wonderful things Jesus still has to do. Think of the confrontations he still has to have. Think of the confession that Peter still will need to go through later on in the gospel. Consider that Jesus does not overwhelm. I've been uh, told recently that sometimes my Sunday school lessons are like drinking from a fire hydrant. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that characterization, though I am working on it. Jesus does not require us to drink from a fire hydrant. He conceals because he knows what we can and cannot handle. And so, what does this phrase reveal? Well, I will put before you today that I think we will see this phrase fill with meaning and this meaning. That Jesus is the powerful Messiah of Daniel 7. That he is the Ancient of Days who stands in glory and splendor. He is, as we've been reading in the evening service in the book of Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega who was and is and is to come. That Jesus Christ is the great I Am. And yet, Jesus needs rest. Look where we're going. Don't tell Pastor Sean that I stole this from him a little bit, okay? But just look forward a little bit and you'll notice that famous story is coming next week. What happens? Jesus and his disciples, they get on the boat. There's a great storm and the disciples start freaking out. But what is Jesus doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. Jesus is trying to get away. Look at verse 18. He's trying to get away from the crowd. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he said, I've got to get out of here. And so you see that Jesus not only knows what you and I can handle, but Jesus perfectly understood the weakness of his human flesh and knew what he could handle. And so what is Jesus referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man? He calls himself the great Messiah who is coming to do a paradoxically confusing thing. Suffer on behalf of his people. That Jesus really is the Son of Man who is a suffering Savior. Now, friends, 
I want to stress something here. But this title, Son of Man, in its uh, uh, concealment and its, in its revealing, okay, is often misunderstood to just refer to Jesus' weaknesses. And so as I, as I tell you these things, I want you to understand that there is today still a misunderstanding. And that many uh, scholars who are, are not believers hear Jesus say that he is the Son of Man and point to this and say that Jesus is openly telling us that he is not God. Now friends, that is just patently false. Not only because of Daniel 7, but because of the other things and identities and titles Jesus takes on himself. What we need to see here is not that misunderstanding, but rather that Jesus is dealing kindly with us and not overwhelming us and showing us that he has come to suffer on our behalf. Because I think it's that misunderstanding that we see in this passage. I think it's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is that drives both the scribe and the other disciple to neither be committed nor sincere in their attempts to be disciples. And so that misunderstanding brings us to our second question this morning, which is, we must ask, what type of commitment does this Son of Man require of his disciples. Again, we see two men approach Jesus here. Uh, the first, a scribe, and the second, another disciple. And the first one, the scribe, notice he is not described as a disciple, but is coming from the outside, wanting to be on the inside. And it's not just somebody, it's a scribe. Most often in the Gospels, the scribes and Pharisees are Jesus' enemies. And so what we see, or perhaps what we, we might glean off the top, the surface level of the text, is Jesus' message is working. The Sermon on the Mount is accomplishing its purpose. The healing uh, that Jesus is undergoing, and, and, and uh, not undergoing, giving to others, excuse me, the, the healing that he is giving freely to others confirms the message. And in light of that, this scribe comes and says... I want to follow you. And Jesus' response is astounding. Absolutely mind-bending. Can you believe that a man comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. This man who is filled with passion, he is on fire. For Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, not so fast. Calm down. Chill out. Take a step back and realize what this means. And so we're sort of dumbfounded, I think, on some level, that, that, that Jesus would discourage this guy from becoming a disciple. But there's two things that we need to see from uh, uh, the immediate context, which tells us why Jesus responds the way that he does. Okay? First, the immediate context is that the scribe isn't asking to be a disciple of Christ generally. Okay? 
The, the, the scribe is not coming to Jesus, in other words, and saying, I want to be a Christian. And Jesus discourages that. Okay, What the young man is saying <clears throat> instead is, I want to be a part of the disciples that follow you into the boat. I want to be one of the twelve. I want to be one of the ones that follows you up the, the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to be with you wherever you go. I want to be right there. No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, that's where I want to be. And so we don't need to understand or read Jesus as saying, no, 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 no. You need to consider what it means to believe in me first. The young man is not asking to be a Christian, but rather asking to be a part of Jesus' inner circle. He is saying, I will be your most devoted disciple. And Jesus is telling him, you don't understand what you're saying. Okay. The second thing is note the scribe's approach. He almost sounds like a, 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 um, I sort of envisioned it as I was reading it this week. He sounds like a college student who's just shown up on campus and gone through a, a student fair, right, of all the organizations on campus, and shows up to a fraternity and is like, you guys are the best, and I want to be one of you. No matter what happens, no matter what it takes, no matter what you put me through, which is going to be a, a whole lot, right, no matter how much you haze me, I'm one of you. I want in. There's a lot of uh, young men who uh, sign up for military academies with this same mindset. And they have to go through something called Frog Week. You ever heard of this? Where it's a couple weeks, really, not just one week, but a couple weeks uh, uh, before the school year starts to sort of s- see where you're at. Right? And the upperclassmen get to sort of treat you like they were treated in their Frog Week. Okay? And a lot of people drop out. They go in with zeal, they go in with flame, they go in with passion, and they burn out quickly. They don't realize what they signed up for. You see, the scribe is approaching Jesus with an incredible zeal, but clearly no eye to perseverance. pastor once told me that perseverance beats zeal every day. And I don't know that I quite understood what he meant until I read this passage. Friends, if you want to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, can I encourage you? You need to focus on perseverance, not zeal. You need to focus on the long run. You've heard the phrase, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, friends, the Christian life is a marathon on top of an ultramarathon on top of three other ultramarathons, and then well beyond that. It is a long and arduous journey. And so the commitment Jesus wants is not on its surface, zeal. He's not asking us to be zealots. But he's asking us to be committed, to be perseverers. For his sake and his kingdom. And so these two factors, I think, teach us about the commitment that Jesus wants us to have. Okay? 
Notice that when we come now to Jesus and we say, I want to follow you wherever you go, we're not asking to follow an itinerant preacher around the Judean countryside, are we? It's hard to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the scribe, but we can glean the general principle here that commitment to Jesus means a commitment to persevere through difficulty, through suffering, and through hardship, through inconvenience. And so, friends, let me ask you this. What is it today that shakes your faith in Christ the most? What is it in your journey on the path of the Christian life that makes you want to quit? to fall out, to sit down, to say, my feet hurt, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this. What is it? Is it your family? Is it your finances? Is it the world around us? Somebody whispering in your ear? Is there a friend who's trying to take you away from Christ and his will? What is it in this life that shakes your faith the most? And understand that if you want to be a true disciple of Christ, if you want to learn from him and be in him on the last day, you must persevere. Jesus isn't saying get over it. He's not saying enjoy it. He's not suggesting to this scribe that he loves his life of not having anywhere to lay his head. I mean, for goodness sake, look, Jesus falls asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. He's so tired. He doesn't like that. He doesn't necessarily call us to that. But he wants us to say, whatever the world, whatever Satan, whatever other people throw at me, I don't care. I want Jesus. I want him, and I want to be with him no matter what. And that's not zeal talking. That's perseverance. That's a life of willingness to walk, not radically, but ordinarily through the inconvenience and the difficulty that we face. And I think this sets up the next disciple very well. So let's ask our third question this morning. What type of sincerity... Does Jesus require of his disciples? Well, like most uh, American boys my age, when I was in middle school, I played football, rec football. As you can tell, I'm in ministry, not the NFL, so it was a failure, right? Also, as you can tell, I'm not built to play football, and I was no good, and I knew it. And so I remember, I recall... uh, Making up one, one football practice, went up to the coach and said, hey, I, I got something going on with my eye. It's not really a lie. You see, I, I was born with an eye issue, but it wasn't really bothering me that day. So I don't, I don't know that I can really do everything, right? I don't know that I can do the push-ups and the running. And, I, you know, I was trying to be a wide receiver. I'm not going to catch many footballs today. And he sort of chuckled. I'll never forget it. He chuckled. He said something sarcastic. And he said, well, you can go over there. And I said, and do what? And he said, I don't know, figure it out. I didn't do much that day. The second man who approaches Jesus is already on the team. He's called another disciple. 
And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, Jesus' response to this scribe seemed maybe a little weird. Jesus' response to this young man seems absolutely brutal. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see, what happened here, I think, is that this disciple, this guy who's already been there, this guy who already knows the truth that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He knew of the inconveniences of the Christian life. He experienced them firsthand, and he thinks, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of it? You know what? I know. I'll ask him about my dad. I'll ask him about my dad. Now, I think there's, there's two things in the text uh, 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 here which shows us rather clearly that the young man's father is not dead yet. Okay? I know that seems weird. Hang with me. Let me show you this. Okay? But I think there's two reasons we should uh, accept the fact that this young man is not yet dead. And the first is <clears throat> Jesus' response. You see, Jesus' response knows better than you and me, doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus can see into the heart of this young man, right? Jesus, Jesus is a big fan of the fifth commandment, right? Of honoring your father and your mother. Jesus knows that there is uh, other commands in the rest of the law of the Old Testament to take care of your father, especially if you're the oldest son. Jesus knows that this uh, uh, comment, this excuse, as I'm going to call it, let me first go and bury my father, is a very good one. But Jesus knows that it's not sincere. And so Jesus' response should be our first indicator That not everything is as it seems. The second thing about this text, which is less obvious, but I think incredibly compelling, is this. If the man's father was dying and now dead, why is he there? Do you see that? Why on earth is this young man even there? Why does he have the time and the convenience throughout this difficulty in his family's life to walk up to Jesus nonchalantly and be like, hey, I'd like to get leave from this whole um, discipleship thing. I need to bury my dad. You see, the problem here is that if, if the young man's father was on his deathbed, he couldn't be anywhere but there with his father. Right? You, you know this. Intuitively, in the New Testament, we see funerals all the time. But have you noticed all the time in those funerals, how quickly does it happen after the person dies? The day of. It's right then. There's no time. It happens. You bury him. It's over. And so if this man's father was dead, time was of the essence. If this was a genuine comment, he would have just left. But going and ensuring that Jesus knew that I had to be gone 
tells a different story. In all likelihood, I believe that the man's father was still alive. And that the comment that I need to go first and bury my father is actually an idiom or a phrase that encapsulates a different meaning. Namely, that meaning being, I need to go and be there when my dad dies. I need to go and fulfill my duty as son and be with my father since he's still alive. You see, just like I went to my football coach and said, hey, I've got an eye problem which you can't deny, because all of you have seen my eye. You know it's messed up, right? It's untouchable. That's an untouchable excuse. So is, hey, let me first go and bury my father. But here's the difference between my football coach and the Son of Man. Jesus is willing to touch it. Jesus is willing to call it out. Jesus is willing, not to be harsh, but teach once again, the difficulty of being a disciple of Christ. He calls the man's insincerity. He calls the bluff. You see, Jesus is telling this young man something sharp and something very and deadly simple. He tells the young man, you are hearing the words of life. You are beholding God face To face. You are here and you are in. I just told a guy who wants to be in, no. And you're already in. What is more important than that? Friends, let me ask you that question today. What is more important than Jesus Christ? What is more important to you and to me in this life than Jesus Christ? You see, this disciple and you and me, we should have responded as Peter responds in John 6. When disciples are abandoning Jesus, what does Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Jesus challenges our sincerity to its furthest limits. Even the most basic and natural relationships are less important than devotion to Jesus. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Before you start suggesting that I'm anti-family, before you start suggesting I'm I'm asking you or telling you to leave a certain situation because of Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. What does Jesus say about the family? What does Jesus do about the family? How does Jesus describe marriage? As between him and the church. And so you see the difficulty can be sometimes sticking around. Staying in that relationship with somebody who's difficult. And I can think of many relationships that I have that are difficult that I stick around because, man, I really want them to know Jesus. But it sure is easy to give up. Friends, what is it that you are trying to say to Jesus? What excuse are you giving to get out of the difficulty of the Christian life? Maybe, uh, maybe it's your neighbor. Across the street, 
You know, you see their door open, and you know if they come out, that's an hour, hour and a half of your time that they're going to soak up with the weather, sports teams. And you just sort of go, hey, see ya. Whatever I was doing outside, I'm not doing now, right? Maybe it's a bit more than that. Maybe it's avoiding sharing the gospel because you're afraid that your friend won't be your friend anymore. Maybe it's avoiding sharing the gospel because you were too busy or too tired. Not eloquent enough. Is this sounding familiar? Or like this disciple. Let's be brutally honest. I mean, Jesus is brutally honest here for us. Let's be honest. Are we using family to get out of service to God? Are we using untouchable excuses to get out of the inconvenience of Christian discipleship? Friends, let me ask you once more. What is more valuable and important than Jesus Christ? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so the sincerity that Jesus requires of true disciples is a sincerity that sets aside not the difficulty of the Christian life, but even the most untouchable of excuses to get out of service. A sincerity that truly loves and devotes itself to Christ. But friends, let me point out just one last oddity of the text before you today. Jesus, did you notice this? Jesus discourages a guy who wants to be in from coming in. And he encourages a guy who's in but wants to be out to stay in. Did you see that? A guy wants in and he said, no, not really. And a guy wants out and he's like, nope, not at all. Not how it works. Follow me. Follow me. We may be tempted to think, you know, this Jesus guy, he's pretty bad at making disciples. He wants to keep the guys who want to go somewhere else, and the guys who want to be with him, nah. Let me hold them at an arm's distance. This Jesus guy needs to learn how to, how to you know, create a movement. He needs to learn how to, how to really engage people, right? Read the room, Jesus. Read the room. No, I think instead we ought to see that Jesus tells us one simple fact. Friends, when you get in, you come in eyes wide open. You know, you know the gospel calls full and total devotion and obedience, sincerity and commitment to Christ. And you know that the gospel says when you come... You stay. Not like Hotel California. But rather, you stay because you want Christ. You want more of Jesus. Friends, let me tell you this morning that Jesus is very open and honest, even brutally so, about what being a disciple of his means. It means suffering and hardship and inconvenience and ultimately a denial of yourself. And what's best for you. But here's the other side. 
Jesus is very open and honest about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It means forgiveness of sins. Full reconciliation. Not partial. Not a little bit. Full reconciliation between you and God Almighty. And if he is for you, who could be against you? No condemnation, but pure and eternal blessedness with Christ. Friends, let me ask you again this morning. What's your view of Jesus? Is Jesus a teddy bear? To go where you want to drag him? And to go where you think you ought to go? Or is he to you instead the Son of Man? The suffering Savior, the Ancient of Days, the Alpha and Omega who stands with might and boldly and openly invites you with these words, follow me. Let's pray to him that it's the second. Great Lord Jesus, we hear your call to follow you. We confess, we... We don't know exactly or precisely what it looks like, what it means for us. For you move mysteriously. But we know that it will be difficult. We know that it will be inconvenient. We know this. And yet, by your grace and the power of your spirit, we commit ourselves sincerely to you today. To follow you where you would lead us. So lead on our great and glorious King. We ask you that you would in your name. Amen.